We're continuing our series, Truth in Love. And what we're doing is we're walking into difficult conversations, even uh, maybe controversial conversations. And we're not doing so because we enjoy controversy. We're not doing so because we enjoy getting anywhere near uh, political hot topics or whatever. We're, we're walking into this because we believe that the voice of God needs to be heard in our day, in our world, and in our culture. And we can't approach difficult topics saying, I just want to speak truth. And we can't approach difficult topics saying, I just want to speak love or in love I want to speak nothing. Because truth without love isn't really truth. And love without truth isn't really love. If truth exists in love, then we can't have one without the other. Because this actually isn't about the controversies. It's all about Jesus. And he is both. He is truth. And he is love. And so we have decided not to avoid the difficult conversations, but to try to have them in a loving way. And, and we even approached this morning a topic that, quite frankly, put the Metroplex in a spotlight last week. Just a week ago, a story went viral right here from the Metroplex where in Dallas County, a, a husband and, and, and ex-wife, ex-wife and ex-husband, were battling for custody regarding their seven-year-old. The husband had no custodial rights, but he was uh, suing for, uh, for custodial rights because the seven-year-old, according to the mom, wants to transition to become a girl. According to the dad, that's not the wishes of his son. Uh, mom is influencing that and only sharing her side of the story. And uh, he lost that case. Uh, the jury ruled 11 to 1 for mom to retain full rights. And before we're too hard on the jury, that there are some um, pretty difficult things from that dad's past with dishonesty and whatnot. So let's not judge too much. We weren't in that courtroom to hear all of that. But according to, to uh, reports, the child actually never testified. The seven-year-old never actually spoke for himself whether or not he wanted to transition or not. And so this story was met with tremendous outrage on both sides of the issue. There are some who were outraged at this dad not honoring the wishes of his son. There were many who were outraged that this mom would force this on her son. And I got to be honest with you, I, I had a lot of emotion as I, as I researched this case as well. But my struggle was, why are we putting that burden on a seven-year-old to begin with? Why would a seven-year-old determine what gender they are. The fact is, when I was seven, I truly believed I was part of the A-team. And most of you, half of you in the room, don't know who that is. I really thought when I was seven, year old, seven years old that my bike was the car from Knight Rider. Okay, Kit, let's go. Like I, again, you have no idea. I'll give you one more. I actually thought the top bunk was Airwolf. And, and that does more than just date me. It shows that a seven-year-old doesn't have a clear understanding between fantasy and reality. Which is why we don't put undue burden on them that's actually unloving. And I would gently submit abusive. We approach this topic with care this morning. And i got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm going to say this. I didn't say this 
in, in the other hour, but this has actually been the hardest sermon yet to preach because I didn't realize how much ground we had lost until I researched this topic. Listen, church, we are far more than just outside the fringes of this conversation. And, and the amount of emotion and hate towards a different position than the culture is profound. As a matter of fact, on this issue here in the Metroplex, there was a Forbes article released that headlined, Texas is afraid. Texas is afraid of a seven-year-old transgender girl. And then the picture posted with the article is of a pink dress skipping through the meadow on a path. Listen, I, this has nothing to do with transphobia for me whatsoever. I'm not af- afraid of a transgender boy or girl. But I'm absolutely fearful and heartbroken that we live in a culture that doesn't know the difference. I'm also fearful that we're making a seven-year-old have to decide what they are. I believe something's wrong. And I believe the only way to be loving is to contend for the truth of God's word this morning. And so nothing I will say this morning is intended to be harmful for someone with gender confusion. Nothing this morning is meant to be hateful. It's intended to be helpful from the author of this story called existence. And yet I fear that much of what's said today is going to be taken as hateful or bigoted. It really resonated with me. A couple months ago, I heard this quote from Josh Howerton, the pastor at Lake Point Church here in the Metroplex. And this, this statement, man, it just matched what I was experiencing in my heart in preparation for this series. And So this is a lengthy quote, but I want you to hear this this morning. He said, one thing that's really hard about being a pastor right now in this political climate is that what's happening right now is, is we're being conditioned to practice what I'm going to call politicized compassion politicized compassion. What what that means is every time a pastor or Bible teacher says anything about compassion for a group of people, people automatically input a political motive into what he's saying. For instance, if I say something about compassion for women, they go, oh, he leans left. If I say something about compassion for the unborn, they go, oh, he leans right. If I say something about compassion for racial minorities, they go, oh, he leans left. If I say something about compassion for first responders, they go, oh, he leans right. If I say something about compassion for immigrants, they go, oh, he leans left. If I say something about compassion for veterans, they go, oh, he leans right. Guys, listen to me. Our primary allegiance isn't to a red elephant or a blue donkey. It is to a slain lamb. And the compassion of Jesus does not have any party lines. And we are called to have the compassion of Jesus, to engage with the compassion of Jesus, and to display the compassion of Jesus. There's no politics in that. The fact is, I think I've been an equal opportunity offender when it's come to politics over the last couple weeks because I find it offensive that Senator Warren would mock a biblical view of marriage. And I find almost every tweet from our president offensive. There's a lack of compassion on both sides of the political party. So I'm not looking to them to fix the problem. But I believe that the God of the Bible does have truth and love to engage even in the most delicate of conversations. So please grab your Bible if you would. If you don't have a Bible today, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. 
Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you today. Uh, we just believe this is a special book. It's so special that we hold it up in the air and we say a creed together before we jump in. And we invite you to join with us in that exercise this morning. Let's say this with authority. Here we go. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. Please turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. If you've been tracking along with this series for the last few weeks, you know we've spent a lot of time in Genesis chapter 1. And here's the deal. We're actually only going to look at one verse this morning. And I struggled with the fact that I kept coming back to this one verse with, with all of my thoughts and with everything the Holy Spirit was, was speaking to me. I just kept coming back to this one verse. And so, I don't know, middle of last week, I was sitting there just scratching my head because the other weeks I've tried to use a lot of supporting scripture with our main text. And, and, and Monica walked into my office and she goes, what's wrong with you? Because anytime the staff see me rubbing my forehead, they know something's wrong. She goes, what's wrong with you? I said, I just... I keep coming back to one verse, and I, I don't want to treat this topic as simple. And then I said out loud, but it really is this simple. And I think that's the point. I believe that the feelings and the eggshells about this topic are complex. But I actually believe the topic of gender is simple. And with that celebration of simplicity... We look at this one verse, Genesis 1, 27 again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This has been a formative text throughout this entire conversation the last several weeks. And one of the reasons that we believe this is not just the genesis of the conversation, this is the genesis of the whole story known as humanity. And it begins with God. It actually doesn't begin with us. God created. And if God created, that means he's authoritative. We'll talk more about that in a little bit, but that really is the heart of this topic this morning. Is a creator God is in charge. But this God didn't just create in a disconnected or in an unloving way. He created humankind in his own image this is foundational this is so foundational that honestly the the image of god that the imago day has been the foundation for our conversations for weeks now The, the image of god is what shapes our conversation about life in the womb the image of god is what shapes our conversation about protecting life outside the womb And defending life outside the womb. And what to do when life is taken outside the womb. It all has to do with being image bearers. The image of God on humankind is what has shaped our conversation about immigration. It's no longer about what does that foreigner have as as their motive. It's what is that fellow image bearer seeking. This even shapes the conversation when we're talking about an image being born in a different ethnicity or a different culture or within different color skin than ours. That we're united as image bearers. This has influenced our conversation as well about our sexual behavior. 
that ultimately as image bearers, what we do with our bodies matter. Because the body's not for us, it's designed for God, and God is for the body. And so when we submit to the God who's placed His image on us, that's where we thrive. That's where we flourish. But this morning I would draw this connection. Within the image of God being placed on humankind is defined and definitive maleness and femaleness. As God created and then placed His image on us, He connected that to our maleness and our femaleness. And here's the thing. I'm so old school and out of touch, I actually believe there is an enemy. I actually believe there is a force of darkness named the devil or Satan. And here's the thing. Satan can't actually rob God of creative authority. He can't change the fact that God created the heavens and the earth. He also, the enemy, cannot take from us the fact that we are image bearers. But if he can distort or blur the idea of maleness and femaleness, he can at least rob God of some of the glory reflected in his image on humankind. I believe this is nothing more than an attack of the enemy. It's not about us evolving as a society beyond the God who created us. It's about the enemy destroying the very glory of the image of God on humankind. Therefore, I don't think we have the option to be silent. And again, I will say, I feel that we have lost tremendous ground in this conversation. And those who are talking are doing so through satire and sarcasm and not in a lot of love. As I've researched and studied this, I discovered something about myself that I did not know about myself and no one's ever told me about myself. I discovered that I am cisgender. According to Wikipedia, the trustworthy source that it is, I'm cisgender. I didn't know that. But the definition of cisgender individuals are those who have a gender identity that matches the sex they were assigned at birth. So my gender identity is male, and that matches what I was assigned at birth. That makes me cisgender as opposed to transgender. I didn't know that. But that definition is really important. That's why I want to start here this morning in our conversation. There are two little assumptions or ideals inside that definition that we've got to extract if we're going to really understand the culture's approach to this subject. The, the first idea within the culture is, is that gender is assigned. Gender is not a biological reality. It's something that is, de- is declared over someone. It's assigned to us. Assigned by who? Declared by who? Our parents? The doctors and nurses? By the culture? Yes, unanimously at birth and has been that way for all of human history, right? And in some sense, most of everyone who's ever lived has been cisgender. So assumption number one is that gender is somehow like declared over us. The second one is this idea of gender identity, and that is that gender is something that's decided. That it's something that's chosen. 
It's something that is felt or experienced. It's not innate. It's decided upon. And those two simple ideas that gender is assigned or declared, that it is chosen or, or decided, listen, I'm telling you, that is embedded in the culture at large today. And to that, we would declare on the authority of Genesis 127, gender is not decided or declared. Gender is designed. Gender is fashioned by the very creator God in the womb. Which is why we can determine gender long before a human can decide what they are. And I don't know if this makes sense to you, but I find it ironic that in the same generation that gender reveal parties have gotten out of hand, we think gender is something that's chosen later in life. But which is true? Can we determine? For instance, please hear this. This is not sarcastic. If someone asks an expecting couple, hey, do you know what you're having? If they hold to a modern culture's worldview, their answer should be, I don't know, they haven't decided yet. That should be the answer. If we're going to be logically consistent, the answer should be, I don't know, they haven't decided yet. But even those that hold to a secular worldview will say, we're having a girl. But if it's something that's chosen, how do you know that? If it's not a biological reality then how can we know what we're having? We believe that God did not create gender-neutral humans. He assigned in the creative moment, in the design of humankind, maleness and femaleness. Gender isn't assigned by someone else. It's a gift from God. And both maleness and femaleness carry the image of God in them, which is where we find our value and our dignity and our worth and our uniqueness as humankind. Gender is not declared or decided. It is, is, it is designed. Here's the second thing I would say. Gender is not constructed. It is created. And that word constructed is important. If this is not a topic that you've been researching much, then here's what I would tell you. The language of the culture is that gender is a social construct. That's the language we frequently hear in this debate. Gender is a social construct, something that, that culture and society has come up with and forces on you. We believe that's co- a completely false narrative. Gender is an absolute trait that is rooted in biology. There's a show on Amazon called Transparent, award-winning show. Transparent is about an, an older uh, father who comes out as trans to his adult children and and there's there's a quote i want to share with you by the director of this show that involves some adult language so i want us to handle this with maturity here this morning but this is crucial to understand where our culture is today jill soloway the director award-winning director of this show said this and i quote in a few years we're going to look back and say When we were little, we used to think that all women had vaginas and all men had penises. But now, of course, we know that's not true, unquote. This is how far we've evolved as a culture. That the elementary biological definition of maleness and femaleness 
Now, of course, we know that's not true. And even the, um, the, the, the kind of looking down her nose language of we're going to look back and say when we were little, right? There's this condescending language in that, that to still believe in a scientific definition of maleness and femaleness is somehow archaic. This is the reality of where we're going. And, and I've got to be honest, the logical progression of that idea it knows no bounds. And this is where I'm afraid conservatives have, have, have become really unkind. Because we, we find it so illogical, our responses are very sarcastic. Uh, the satirical website Babylon B, uh, one of their uh, most trending articles is about a man who self-identifies as a six-year-old wins the home run derby in T-ball, Right? And we're kind of mocking this idea, and I'm not sure that mocking is the way we earn a seat at the table in this conversation. But that is a, a healthy conversation, right? The fact is, I can't just say I'm whatever I want to be. I can't say I self-identify as a 65-year-old man, so I want to start receiving my Social Security checks, because I assume they aren't still going to be around by the time I actually retire. I can't self-identify as a particular minority because I want scholarship help because I don't know how I'm going to afford to send my kids to college. I'm not trying to be, be sarcastic here. If tomorrow I went to the local elementary school and said, I, I self-identify as a six-year-old kindergartner because I really miss naps in the middle of the day and I really miss snack time. They would say, no, you're not. You can't come here. You need to go see a doctor. And they would be right. Because I can't say that I'm a six-year-old. My wife might tell you I act at times like a six-year-old. Listen, this is not some construct by the culture. It's a reality that's created by God. And and I want to say this. I told you this was my hardest talk, so, so this might hurt some feelings. Listen, I believe we are reaping the consequences of telling a generation that they can be anything they want to be. And maybe you've spoken that over your kids, and so maybe it offends you that I just call that a consequence. But I, I want to be clear. I can't be anything I want to be. I cannot be an NFL lineman. I can't. Matter of fact, I can't be any form of professional athlete. There's not a sport that plays money I can play well enough. Table tennis, nope, I'm legally binding one. I have no depth perception. None of it. And here's the thing. I actually don't think my sons can be anything they want to be. But I think they can be everything God designed them to be. And I believe only when they find that and enjoy that, will they truly flourish as men. I don't want them to follow their passions. I want them to follow their God. He will direct their passions. They're not their own saviors, their own heroes. They already have a savior. And he does a better job at being that than we can. Gender is not constructed. It is created. I've got to move on. Let me say this. If gender is a social construct, 
then I agree we should deconstruct it. But if it's created by God, then I believe our only response that's healthy is to submit to it. Here's, here's the next conclusion from Genesis 1. Gender is not fluid, it is fixed. Gender is not fluid, it is fixed. Please hear, again, this is not sarcastic. This argument is so simple that I'm afraid some of the things I'm going to say are, are sounding sarcastic, but that's not my heart. The, Genesis 1.27 does not say God created male or female. It says male and female, distinct from one another. And that's an important distinction. Maleness and femaleness is not something that changes with the given day. Just this past week, a young man who identifies as a man, who is a man, whose name is a male name, he won homecoming queen at his high school in California. And he's being celebrated for his bravery as all the girls who lost the homecoming queen title cheered for him, he was actually nominated by his classmates to be homecoming prince, voted on to become king. But he said, no, I think on homecoming night I'll identify as a girl. Because he identifies as gender fluid. Every day he decides what he feels like. And he went to the school administration and said, I think on homecoming night I'm going to choose to be a girl. I just don't think that's how it works. I don't think that's healthy. And I think celebrating that is actually really unloving to that young man. I think it's genuinely abusive to him. In just a few years ago, um, Time Magazine ran a cover story. And I want us to hear the title of this article with, with logical reasonable ears okay my brother's pregnancy in the making of a new american family did y'all hear me my brother's pregnancy and the making of a new american family that article cover, covers the story of evan hempel who was born a girl and in his late, in her late teenage years, decided she wanted to become a man, began transitioning, but never lost her desire to give birth. And so she didn't fully transition. She had a big burly beard, had legally changed her name to Evan, and gave birth. And that magazine, in Time Magazine, uh, is full of pictures of her, what they call, Chest feeding his infant. My friend, that's some confusion. In the book, A Practical Guide to Culture, which I've quoted a lot the last few weeks in this morning's talk, it was a tremendous help. John Stone Street said, in this brave new world, gender is so fluid that men give birth. We got to help our kids navigate this. And let me say this, the culture has been very loud about this topic, and the church has been awfully quiet, and when we have spoken, we have been unkind. And the percentages of millennials and Generation Z who think we're off our rocker 
that maleness and femaleness is fixed is, is heartbreaking. We have two generations coming up behind us who are convinced that we're nuts. We believe that gender is not declared or decided, it's designed. We believe that gender is not constructed, it's created. We believe that gender is not fluid, it is fixed. We believe that gender is not abstract, it is absolute. It's not this random, undefined thing. It's absolute, and we believe this generation is in desperate need of absolute truth. Quite frankly, this is, this is the logical conclusion of evolutionary thought. If I'm created on purpose, then my maleness and my femaleness has been determined by my creator. But if I'm an accident then of course my gender could be an accident. Do you follow that? This is the full logical conclusion of evolutionary thought. I'm an accident. How is that loving? How is it loving to affirm, you're right, you're a giant mistake? No, we believe in the absolute truth of a creator God. You find the genesis of identity, purpose, value, and mission. Our kids need absolutes. So here's this idea for abstract thought. This summer, while our kids were on summer break, in uh, Berkeley, California, the city of Berkeley, city council, voted to ban the use of gender words in all of their city documents. In their city documents, they banned the use of the word manhole cover. It's now called a maintenance hole cover. They banned the use of the word craftsman. It's now craftspersons or craftspeople. They banned the use of the word manpower. It's now human effort. They banned the use of the words sorority or fraternity and replaced them with collegiate Greek system residents. Because that rolls off the tongue so much easier. And then declared, we are doing this to actively promote equality. Listen, our equal worth is found in the image of God, not changing the name of something. Changing the name of a manhole cover to a maintenance hole cover does nothing to promote equality. And by the way, why do we think that there needs to be a promotion of equality if men and women are already equal? What needs to develop is our understanding of equality. That's not in our language. That's a heart problem. If we don't think that men and women have inherent equal value before God, that's an image of God issue, not a city document issue. The next statement I would say from Genesis chapter 1 is that gender is not about feelings. It is about fact. Gender is not about feelings. It is about facts and the the screaming message of the culture today is that we must validate people's feelings in order for them to flourish there's a lot of modern conversation right now about the flourishing of humankind and the conclusion is the way for people to flourish is for us to affirm how they feel and here's my struggle with that 
what if their feelings are wrong? Because I know in my 42 years of life, my feelings have failed me time and time and time again. They've not been factual. They've not been helpful. And if people would have affirmed those feelings, they actually would have sinned against me. It is not loving to affirm incorrect feelings. So I would ask a question that I don't want you to say out loud. We've already used some dirty words this morning. How can we biologically know that someone is male or female? How do we know? The answer is there are scientific, medical, objective facts about our physiology, about our anatomy, about our chromosomes, about our DNA. Maleness and femaleness is undeniable. Factually. Same question. How do we biologically know that someone is transgender? And the answer is, there is no objective evidence. There is no medical or scientific evidence. As a matter of fact, it only exists in the mind of the transgender individual. They diagnose themselves, and even more heartbreaking, diagnose their own treatment. A doctor can do nothing. In 2014, the Lincoln, Nebraska school district handed out a pamphlet informing their teachers that they are no longer to call their children boys and girls. Do not call them boys and girls because you don't know what they feel like they are today. By the way, in that article that I referenced at the beginning, the one that said Texas is afraid of a seven-year-old transgender girl, in that article, that author very condescendingly spoke of parents who don't ask their children every morning at the beginning of the day what they feel like they are today. Chastised a parent who wouldn't ask, what name do you want to go by today? What pronouns do you prefer today? What are you feeling? And and again, I don't mean this ugly, but like my kids don't feel like brushing their teeth. My kids don't feel like eating vegetables. And my kids surely don't feel like getting up and going to school most days. They don't feel like doing their homework. They don't feel like cleaning their room. They don't feel like treating their brothers with dignity. They don't feel like doing most of the things that are actually best for them. That's why God gave them parents. Gender is not about feeling. It is about facts. The heartbreaking truth is that Seattle Children's Hospital now has a designated gender clinic for children. A children's hospital has a gender clinic for children in Seattle where they give out puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones to children. We spoke of homecoming earlier. There's a a high school in Ohio that actually has done away with the terms homecoming king and homecoming queen. They just call it homecoming royalty because we don't know what that winner might feel in that moment. Human beings cannot flourish when we are controlled by our emotions. We flourish when we are governed 
by the love of a creator. The next observation and final observation from the text, and then two more things we'll say after that. But from the text, I would say this gender is not autonomous. It is authoritative. God created. So autonomy is I'm out from under any authority. Right? No one's in charge of me. That's what autonomy means. This issue of gender is not a celebration of autonomy because we are under an authority. Autonomy is celebrated right now as the height of human experience. Quoting again from Stone Street, he said, Absolute autonomy, we're told, is the path to one's authentic self. In fact, our culture's new vision of human dignity is autonomy. Unrestrained by any external limitations, one can never be defined by anyone else except oneself. Human dignity is grounded in the autonomous will of an individual. This path of unfettered choice is how humans flourish, our culture declares. And if we deny a human being's right to feel or to be their own boss, we are labeled as hateful bigots. As a matter of fact, we are no longer demanded to tolerate autonomy. We must affirm autonomy. Independent of our view of reality or independent of our view of our faith. And I, and I hope this makes sense. I, I had this observation just this week. It's almost like we resent authority so much that we don't even like our bodies telling us what we are. We reject the evidence of our own physical beings. That's how rebellious we are. And I would submit to you it's not about bigotry. It's about biology. I believe that gender confusion is actually an issue of mental health. And I know that that is going to get me emails and probably tick some people off. But I just don't think we can be loving and not address the mental health side of this topic. Two-thirds of transgender people have diagnosed severe emotional disorders. Far more than the general population, transgender men and women have heartbreaking rates of depression, anxiety, phobias, and a host of other emotional disorders. And I don't hear anybody saying, hey, encouraging them on that difficult path is bad for them. When I would submit to you, I don't know how we're loving without going, hey, I don't think this is healthy. The response of the church isn't, hey, this is bad and wrong and stupid. No. The response of the church is, you can't flourish as a person if you don't know what you are. Let us help you. The DSM. Maybe some of you have heard of that. It it is the secular psychiatrist's Bible, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's the benchmark for mental health in our culture today. It labels gender dysphoria as a mental disorder. This secular book, no pastors had anything to do with the DSM. Trust me, it's very secular. They define gender dysphoria as a marked incongruence between one's experienced or expressed gender 
and their assigned gender. Here's the thing. If someone is confused about who they are, we don't enforce and affirm and encourage the confusion. We lead them toward healthy understanding. For instance, if a real skinny little 90-year-old girl were to come into my office and say, I am convinced that I am morbidly obese. And so I purge when I eat. I go through massive fasting phases of life. And through conversation, let's say that this little 90-year-old girl, I was to think, man, I think there's some anorexia or some bulimia here. Do you know what I would do? I would, I would feel her pain. I, I wouldn't dismiss it. I wouldn't be unkind. I would hear her struggle. But then I would help her see herself as she really is. I wouldn't tell her, you're right, you're humongous. That would be the most unloving, abusive response I could have. By the way, and none of the secular therapeutic community would do any different. Transgender, transgenderism is the only issue in the mental health spectrum where we're affirming the confusion. And as a result, the proposed cure is actually harming the patient. And most heartbreaking of all, as, as a survivor of suicide, when I lost my brother, here's, here's where I believe the church has got to speak up. And this is why I'm telling you, I'm speaking from love today, not accusation or harshness. 41% of the transgender community at large attempt suicide at some point in time in their life. 41%. And that's actually very conservative. There's some research that shows it much higher than that, especially for those who've actually transitioned. 41%. The, the statistic of the general population who attempt suicide is 1.6%. And it's 41% for the transgender community. Listen, the most loving thing we can do is kindly, lovingly walk with someone who's struggling in this area. Here's the last thing I'll say, and then I'll be done. The same God who designs gender offers hope. The same God who designs gender offers hope because he loves us, because he placed his image on us. He desires that humanity would flourish. See, the thing about a transgender person is they know something's not right. And we would agree we just don't think that you're going to find what's right by changing your body. You'll find, the, you'll find what's right when you come to know your maker. Which isn't just true for this topic. It's true for your marriage. The answer is not found in fixing your situation. The answer is found in knowing your creator. It's true for your job. It's true for your finances. It's true for your health. Whatever your struggle is, whatever your fog is, whatever your confusion is, the solution is Jesus. He's the source of hope. And so we're not calling out transgender as, a, as some rare, odd thing that it needs to find hope in Jesus. No, it's, it's true with every struggle that we walk through, every bit of confusion. The answer is Jesus. We want to affirm the same thing that the trans community is looking for, wholeness and goodness. We just believe that's found in the Creator God and a personal relationship with Him.
I'll say this to close. I, when we started this series, before we started this series, somebody commented online that this series sounded like it was going to be hate the sin and love the sinner. And maybe some of us grew up hearing that phrase a lot. I heard that a lot in church when I was growing up. Hate the sin, love the sinner. This person commented on that before I had ever preached a sermon, by the way. So much for tolerance. But here's the deal. I actually don't like that phrase at all. Hate the sin and love the sinner. No offense if that's a phrase you've used or heard a lot. I just don't think it sends the right message. And here's why. I think my job, number one, if I'm going to hate sin, is to hate the sin that's wreaking havoc in my own heart. And I think there are sins outside of us that are worthy of us having a lot of emotion towards us. Sins of violence and sins of, of taking advantage of the vulnerable. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, my priority when it comes to sin is to look in the mirror and begin with me. And then the condescension of the phrase, love the sinner, as though somebody else's sin makes them a sinner. Listen, love the sinner is what we all need. I hope they'll love this sinner too. So why don't we just say, let's just love people. Loving people in the midst of our mess and not thinking that their mess is somehow worse than our mess or that our mess is better than their mess. Let's just love people and together walk towards truth because that's where we'll find hope. I want to see the next generation flourish. I want to see the people I care about flourish. That doesn't come anywhere other than the truth of God and His Word. Truth is in love. We can't have one without the other. Because it's all about Jesus. And He is both.